Well, hey, good morning, and uh, glad you're here today. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series called More Than Enough, where we're, we're looking uh, at Scripture and seeing how Jesus fulfills and provides for uh, all of our deepest needs. We have a lot of them, don't we? Uh, we're, we're pretty messed up in a lot of ways, and God created us not messed up. We sinned and got messed up, but he created us with needs. And in our sin, those needs get amplified, and a lot of times we try to fill them with things that we shouldn't, when in reality, they're designed to be filled by Jesus Christ and by God himself. And so that's what we've been looking at over the last three weeks, and we've got three more weeks in this series. It'll take us up to Christmas Eve, to that morning. And uh, just a reminder, we do have, in case you haven't heard this, we do have our regular Sunday morning service on Christmas Eve, and then in addition to that, our Christmas Eve service that night at 6 p.m., and that one will be full of music, and uh, the gospel will be presented, and it'll be a good time. It was a great time last year as we sang together, and I uh, hope that uh, you're making that a part of your tradition this Christmas and, and going forward. So I hope to see you there. Bring your family along, friends. It should be a good evening together. Uh, but today, um, we're in this series called More Than Enough. And uh, I want to draw your attention to some words of Jesus in John chapter 11. And in in John chapter 11, what happens is uh, Jesus is with his disciples and he receives word from uh, a couple friends of his, Mary and Martha. And their brother, do you remember his name? Lazarus, what had happened to him? He had died. And Jesus right away, what does he do? He packs up, drops everything and goes home, right? And goes to to see him. No, no. If you look at John chapter 11, Jesus actually waits for four days, and then he goes home. And then he goes and uh, eventually would raise Lazarus from the dead. But as he gets there, Martha comes out. Martha is the very task-oriented one, and she's like, where have you been? If you were here, my brother would be alive. And he says uh, these incredible words to her in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, Uh, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this, that I'm the resurrection and the life? Notice he didn't say, I'm the one who resurrects and I'm the one who gives life. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Two big I am statements there by Jesus. And what would that, what effect do you think he was going for in Martha's heart? I mean, for sure belief that she would believe, right? Do you believe this? But, but our belief in Jesus Christ, I guess that'd be the question for you. Do you believe this? And if you do, do you know what that creates in you? A hope and a trust in Jesus that no matter what comes, no matter what has come, it's going to be Okay. Because Jesus is good. He's the resurrection and the life. And uh, Martha's response is curious. She's like, yeah, I believe that. I know on the last day you're going to raise everyone from the dead. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like right now. Right now. Do you believe that? That's where we're headed this morning. We're going we're gonna to take that truth of Jesus. And I want to go back and look at uh, a couple Psalms again this morning. And you're going to study that passage in your 110 group this week. Uh, but 
but I want you to see Jesus as the resurrection and the life as the source of our hope as we dive into the Psalms this morning. Sound good? All right, let me pray and then we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. Uh, Lord, help me remember that and uh, help me believe that, not just uh, at a heart and intellectual level, but in, in the way that I live my life, that I truly live it out. Um, show us this morning from your word, Lord, uh, in some ways really the way up when we're down and uh, how to deal with hopelessness and uh, to turn our eyes, Jesus, to you because you are our hope. You are our, the resurrection and the life and our only hope in reality. We're designed to find that hope in you. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy as servants their works and effects. Uh, instead, would you teach us and work in our hearts in such a way that we would see uh, the goodness and glory of Jesus and our need for him. Lord, we love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look with you at Psalm, two Psalms actually, 42 and 43. Don't worry, that doesn't mean the sermon will be longer because it's two Psalms. Two Psalms though, 42 and 43. And the reason for two of them is because if, if you were a Jewish person and you could read Hebrew and you had your Hebrew Bible open, uh, and maybe one of the early manuscripts, most of the early manuscripts of these two Psalms, it was one Psalm. Now, I don't know the story, and there's differing accounts on how did it get split into two, but I think in reality that 40, Psalm 42 and 43 are actually one psalm that somehow, for whatever reason, got divided up. And I think you'll see that pretty clearly as we go into it. Um, and most scholars believe that too. So they're smarter than me, so I'm taking their advice and saying, yeah, I think it's one psalm. You with me? All right. But what I want to look at first, before we dive into it, is I want you to see there's going to be a pattern that happens three times in these two psalms together. Three times this pattern happens with the psalmist as he writes. First, he expresses anguish. He expresses anguish. The anguish of the now, of right now, what's really happening, the reality of life, how hard it is, and he gets it all out. He just, he just dumps it out on the table before God. Um, chances are you're facing some kind of anguish right now. I, I've got some in my heart. Uh, what's in yours? Or, or, pour that out. Express it to God. That's what the psalmist does. He, he gets it all out. Um, and as the, as the stanzas develop, one of the things you're going to see is that, because he does it three times, is that each time he expresses anguish, the screw gets turned a little bit tighter. And it gets a little bit harder and the agony deeper. Uh, like at first he goes, I can't get to God. Then it's God's forgotten me. Then it's God has abandoned me. You're going to see that this morning. So first thing he does is anguish. Then the next part of his pattern is after he, he gets it all out and expresses his anguish, he expresses remembrance. Part two is remembrance. He Specifically, he remembers God's grace. So he, he, he lays it all on the table. He just, he, he throws it all down. And then uh, he takes a moment and he remembers God's goodness and his grace. And this happens three times as well. He forces himself to think by way of remembrance of what God has done in the past, of who God really is, of who he truly is, even in light of all this anguish he's facing right now. These things are still true of God, and he forces himself to remember that. And then part three, 
he ends all three times in verse 5 of 42, verse 11 of 42, and verse 5 of 43. They're all the exact same verse. He ends with a sermon. He preaches to himself. He preaches to himself. Do you preach to yourself? Do you, do you speak God's word to you and to your heart and to those things going on in your mind when your, your mind just races down all the anxiety and all the other things going on? Do you stop for a second and you know, be like, soul, stop <laughs> and just preach to yourself? Now, if you do that out in public on the street, people are going to think you're weird. But, but just in your mind, in your head, right, in your journal, do, are you preaching to yourself? Watch as we'll see this pattern develop three times through this psalm. And I just wanted to lay that out. And then uh, let's just take some time and unpack these two psalms together. Does that sound good? And specifically, these two psalms, um, they're two that, that many people go to when they're struggling with hopelessness or depression. Because there may not be a, another writing in all of scripture that really deals with kind of, as one author has said, the dark night of the soul more than these two psalms put together. I don't know about you, but I know for a lot of people, I don't know if this is true for you, but for many people as we approach the holidays, while it should be a time of joy and thanksgiving, there's, there's things that come up and, and for whatever reason, there's anguish that crops up in your heart and in your life, whether that's, I got to deal with my family. I see them once a year and this is it and it's always rough but I wish it wasn't. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's um, uh, you, you've lost a loved one and this is the first or second or third Christmas without them. Or it's the 31st Christmas without them and it's still really hard. Uh, maybe, what, what is it? For whatever reason, this season just, have you noticed that? It just dredges up hopelessness and despair in people's hearts. And uh, many of us uh, I think few of us really are exempt from it. It just, it tends to happen. And not just this season, but it seems to be pronounced this time of year. Well, these two Psalms really deal with that. And what I want to look at is look at these Psalms and the whole time in the back of your mind, I want you to be remembering Jesus' words, that I'm the resurrection and the life. That, that the psalmist's hope and our hope needs to be in Jesus. Well, he begins um, by expressing anguish. And by the way, before we get there, you notice in your text, uh, there's kind of a heading on uh, chapter 42 or, or Psalm 42. There's two headings. One says book two. The Psalms are divided into five different books. And this is kind of the start of the second book with Psalm 42. But also then it gives some instructions because these are songs, right? It says to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, and that's a type of music. Uh, the Korah, the Korah, the sons of Korah, the Korahites were Levites. They were descended uh, through a, a guy named uh, Kohath, Korah's father, and they were employed to perform all the music at the temple. They were the worship band. That's who they were, the sons of Korah. Sounds like a heavy metal band, kind of, doesn't it? But, but they're the worship band, in a sense. And uh, the interesting thing, though, if you look at the history of this, is that uh, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, this guy named Korah, their uh, father, grandfather, whoever he was, led a rebellion against the leaders of Israel. He led a rebellion against uh, Moses, and he and 250 other leaders decided uh, they were going to rebel against the main leaders. And it's a pretty sobering thing of, of, of God's view of our submission to authority, right? Because the earth splits open, they fall into it, and they're gone, never heard from again. 
But what's amazing to me now as I read this psalm is that his sons, uh, the sons of Korah, his descendants anyway, um, were spared. He had some descendants spared. And it seems that, uh, that they had turned their heart back in gratitude to God. And this is just kind of a side note to the message this morning, but it just stood out to me this week that, that these guys come from a background where you'd go, oh man, taboo family, watch out. Don't stand too close. The earth will split open underneath you. And yet this is a group of people that God has redeemed. And it's a reminder that no matter, so maybe that's a source of your despair. I don't know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, uh, God's grace is big enough to redeem and save and make you new. Amen. And the writers of these two Psalms are prime examples of it. So let's get into the Psalm. You'll recognize a lot of this. He starts out in verse one. Uh, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, flowing streams, flowing streams are, are, are referred to oftentimes in scripture as living water. They're moving. They're fresh. They're not stagnant with, with stuff growing in them. It's, it's moving. It's fresh. It's continually turned over. And it's, it's flowing water. Have you ever noticed it just keeps doing what? Flowing. There's just this constant source where it just, keeps, it just keeps coming. I don't know where it comes from, but it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And he said, uh, Lord, like the deer pants for flowing streams that never end, that's how I pant for you. That's how my soul longs for you. He, he's getting some of his anguish out here. He goes on then in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. See, it's flowing or living waters, and now it's the living God. He's the source of life. An unending source. What did Jesus say? I'm the resurrection and the life. That's who the psalmist is, is, is longing for. And then he says, um, when shall I come and appear before God? He's like, God, my, my soul is longing for you. Now, we don't know the situation. We don't know what's going on. But his, his soul is longing for God like a deer, like he sees deer out panting for fresh water. And then, then he, he makes this comment. So he's struggling in some way, shape, or form. And then he goes, and uh, when shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before you? You know what I think is really at the heart of that statement? is not so much, um, hey, when is our appointment? Is that next week we're getting lunch or two weeks? I don't remember. And it was, it was Wednesday, right? He's not like that. He's like, uh, where are you? When am I ever going to see you? When am, when am I ever going to be able to see your face again and spend time with you? When shall I come and appear before God? When will you answer? I'm thirsty for you. When will you satisfy? I thought you said you were the resurrection and the life. Where are you? Do you, do you hear that in his writing? There's anguish there, isn't it? And he goes on and he says, uh, in fact, to, to prove my point of the anguish, look at verse 3. It's very poetic in it. My tears have been my food day and night. What'd you have for breakfast? Tears. Lunch? Tears. How about supper? Tears. Do you have any snacks? Yeah, tears. I'm just crying all day long. What's, I mean, that's a poetic way of just saying, like, I'm just, I'm undone. I'm, in fact, I'm not, un, I am done. <laughs> I've got, I've got nothing left. My tears have been my food day and night. All I'm doing is mourning, Lord. Where are you? When will I see you again? Come to me. And, they're my, and, and look at what they say to me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? See, it, 
a little bit ago, he, w- he was asking, uh, when will I see you again, right? When, when will I come before God in verse two? And now at verse three, he's saying, and my tears, my circumstances, all of them are saying, where is God? Everything around me just seems, keeps pointing to this, God, where are you? Show your face. God seems utterly and completely distant from him when he's panting and thirsting and probably needs him the most. You ever experienced that? Where in the moment where you, it's just like, man, I, I need God more than anything right now, that he can seem the most distant. I've had that sense. I've had that feeling. Where it's like, where, where are you? And um, not only just in the, my, my spirit, but like, look, look around me. Lord, look at everything happening. Where, where are you? What is this? When will you come to my defense? And then there's his anguish, right? We saw that first. And now we're going to see him remember God's grace. Look at verse 4. He said, but these things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember how I would go with the throng and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise with a multitude keeping festival. See, the Jewish people would, uh, multiple times a year, they would ascend to Jerusalem to worship. And there's Psalms that are actually called the Psalms of Ascent because it's while they're going up the mountain to Jerusalem and they would sing these songs and there would be a loud procession. And those of you who've been to India, you know what I'm talking about when they do the big parade with us, right? And they take this, you ever get to go, they, they come and get you out of the house and they do this big loud procession of people to where, uh, where the conference is. It's, it's incredible. And, and th- he's remembering those days. Uh, he's remembering uh, those times when he would pour out his soul and there would be this throng and he would lead them and there would be uh, not shouts of anguish, but glad shouts, joyful noises, songs of praise. And, and it wasn't just him, it was the whole, everyone was fired up and keeping festival. He remembers those times of God's grace. Now, uh, I would tell you, this pattern we see of the psalmist is maybe a good pattern for us to mimic. That we express our anguish to God, and then the next thing we need to do is remember his grace. But in remembering things, uh, this actually came up in, in our 110 group this week. There's two, two ways of remembering, right? There's remembering that's lament. What's a lament memory? The good old days. Remember how it used to be when uh, Beaver came home and uh, there, everything was in black and white, so it all looked neat. And, uh, you know, he was very respectful to his parents, and, and there was good food on the table every night. And I don't know how she did it, but June did the dishes in her high heels, and it was awesome, right? It's the good old days. What, what, are, the, what are the good old days for you? Like, oh, I remember that, how that used to be. I remember... Some commentators think that the psalmist here isn't remembering in terms of remembering God's grace, but he's remembering... And lamenting like the good old days. Oh, I just wish it could be like that again. What, what are the good old days for you? Is it, um, is it associated with a, with a season of life, with a season of, of, uh, of ministry, with uh, an event or a place or a feeling? or a, what, what is it? Now, if, if we remember and all we do is remember the good old days, there's something that happens is we tend to distort that. We look at it with, with glasses that aren't very clear. And we remember the good old days being a whole lot gooder than they really were. 
Would you agree? Because in the moment, if somebody, like, chances are, like right now, this, this season of, of, our, of our church, of your family, of whatever it is, somebody's in, in 15 years, somebody's going to look back, do you remember those days? Man, those were great days. And then they're going to come to me, and I, I'm going to be able to tell them all the things that weren't that great. And you might be able to, too. But we look back, and we lament, and we think, oh, it was so good. And then we cloud our vision and our expectation of God for the future. And so that's really not the way God calls us to remember. Instead, the other way of remembering is remembering with hope. And I think this is the way God calls us to remember. In fact, over the last few years, as I've been reading, especially in the Old Testament, I've got a list in my Bible software of every time that I've come across where God says remember to his people. And my goal in this, I'm trying to figure out why, or I started this, why did God tell his people to remember the past? to remember what he had done, to remember what they had done. And I'm telling you, every single time, I have not, maybe you can find one and show me, but so far I have not found one time yet when God says remember, where he was just saying, remember the past and sit and dwell on it and remember the good old days. He was saying it with a view to the present and the future. Not remember it because that was so good, because sometimes he tells them to remember really bad things. Remember it with your eyes on now and forward. Why? So that either you would trust him to do the same thing now and in the future, or you wouldn't do the same stupid thing you did now or in the future. His, his, when, he, when he tells his people to remember, it's always, I, I say that with an asterisk because I haven't found an example yet, but it, from what I've seen, it's always with the future in mind. Never with the good old days in mind always with the future. And uh, so some commentators think that the psalmist here is remembering with the future in mind, remembering that God's still good. Others think he's lamenting. Maybe it's, it's a mix of both because it's hard for us to do only one. But he's remembering. So he poured out anguish. He remembered God's grace. And then here's the chorus of the whole psalm. It comes up three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? After remembering God's grace and his goodness, he's like, so, so why is it that you're cast down, oh my soul? He's preaching to himself. And why, why is it that you're in turmoil within me? Now he preaches, right? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So at least if he wasn't in verse four, by the end of verse five, he's turned his remembrance toward the future, hasn't he? I will praise him again, my salvation, my God. Um, this is the chorus of the psalm. There, there was a song, whenever I read this psalm, there was this song in the mid-90s, this praise chorus. I was listening to it again this morning in my office, but it just comes to mind. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God, put your hope in God, put your hope in God. Do you know that song, anybody? Nobody knows it. I'll sing it again. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God and bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And I don't know why. It just always comes to mind. It's like this cheery tune. And I read this when I'm down and I'm like, I don't want to sing that song. I don't want to put my hope in God. But it's true, right? We've got to preach to ourselves. Now, there's something that's really unique about this psalm that I learned this week that I never knew before. 
Um, I love that about God's word as you study it and as you go deeper and over time you can continue to learn things about it. And specifically the thing I learned is in verse five, that, that word uh, cast down, two words in English, that he's cast down. Do you know, I never knew this before, but I learned this week that it's likely that's referring back to this metaphor we've talked over the last couple of weeks of a shepherd and his sheep. Do you know that a sheep can become cast or cast down? Specifically, a, a sheep, uh, a lot of times it happens in the spring uh, with, with those with ewes who are pregnant or just they have so much more wool and they're he- top heavy and wobbly. And if they roll over and get stuck on their back, they're like that commercial. They need the, the button, right? I've fallen and I can't get up. They can't, they can't, they can't get up. Now, sometimes they can wiggle and, and uh, uh, thrash themselves enough to where they can roll over and get up, but, but they get cast down. And if they stay there for too long, and Bruce, you can correct me if I'm way off on any of this. They stay there too long. Bruce is a vet, if you don't know Bruce. And uh, they get gas in their stomachs and they basically die, right? Check this out. Here's a sheep somewhere in England. I don't know if it'll, it should be a video. Click it once. There we go. He's just helpless, isn't he? Yeah, some of you are laughing. Some of you are going, oh. (laughs) Poor guy. Now, if he lays there for too long, he's going to die. The writer of the psalm, I think, after reading some things this week, has this image in mind, talking about his soul. Why are you so cast down? Why are you so cast down? You've gotten to the point where you're hopeless and helpless and on your back. And listen, if you stay here, you're going to die. Why are you at turmoil within me? Why are you kicking and flailing and trying to get up? Listen, hope in God. Hope in the shepherd. Call to him. Don't be cast down. Hope in God. For you will again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist reminds himself where to fix his eyes and that eventually he'll get back on his feet. But his only hope is his shepherd. Or maybe it's other sheep who would come along and encourage him and tip him up. Because if you stay there for too long, it's deadly. Is that helpful? I don't know about you, but that image is just really helpful to me. Well, let's go on uh, in uh, verse 6. The psalmist continues and he starts his pattern all over again. He's back to anguish now. My soul is cast down within me, using that same metaphor. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. We're not sure where that is, but uh, Mount Hermon is up to the north, the land of Jordan, north and east of Israel. And and what he's saying is, I remember you from a long ways away. From a long ways away. And uh, I want to come back. (laughs) I miss it. And then he goes on and he just continues to express his anguish in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. In scripture, deep is uh, a metaphor often used of a place of chaos and of evil and of wickedness. Um, And it's a place, it's it's the abyss. And, And what he's, remember we're reading poetry here, right? And so as a, as a poet, uh, 
he's writing, he's like, deep calls to deep. This, this chaos over here, it's like it calls out to this chaos, this deep over here. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, he's like, hey, why don't you come and join the party and, and make this uh, a whole stew of anxiety? Deep calls to deep. In, in fact, it's all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. One force of chaos summons another. It's, he's, he's describing Murphy's Law, right? If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Especially after something else has gone wrong. That's what he's expressing. Deep calls to deep. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Jonah used similar language in Jonah uh, chapter 2, verse 3, right? You remember Jonah? He's rebelling and running from God. And so God chases him down and he eventually gets uh, thrown off the ship and swallowed by a fish. And finally, in the fish, he repents. Now, sometimes, I guess that's maybe a reminder to us that sometimes our, uh, our hopelessness, our depression can be because of our own sin. And like Jonah, we just need to repent. Because this is exactly the phrase Jonah uses. He goes, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So sometimes we just need to repent. But uh, in verse 8, then suddenly he remembers God's grace again. He goes, and the psalmist says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. In the midst of despair, he keeps bringing himself back, even if it's not easy, to what he knows to be true. Do you find yourself in a spot of hopelessness or despair? What do you know to be true about God? It hasn't changed. Your circumstances might have changed. Life may have changed dramatically, and it might be incredibly hard, and I'm not negating that. But I'm telling you, God himself has not changed. He still loves you with the same love. He'll still redeem you completely one day. And he has not forgotten you. In fact, by day the Lord commands his steadfast, unending, enduring love. And at night his song is with me. Day and night. We talked about his protection earlier in this series. A prayer to the God of my life. But then look, he... Like us, he turns right back to his anguish in verse 9, doesn't he? He goes, I, I say to God, my rock. So he's my rock, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after him. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, God's his rock. He's unchanging. But, um, but then he goes right back, and he's brutally honest with them. Why have you forgotten me? Now, what's true? Has God forgotten him? No. But it feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Can we be honest? There's times God feels incredibly distant. Aren't you glad that your faith isn't based on your feelings, but on the truth of his word? I am, because if it was based on my feelings, man, it would be a roller coaster ride, and it'd be bad news. Well, but, but he's expressing himself to his God. Jesus prayed something very similar in the garden, right? He also prayed from Psalm 22. He said, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you would do like Jesus then, and if you're going through some anguish, just pick a psalm and pray it to God. That's what Jesus did. But he goes on, why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You have an enemy that's constantly accusing you, constantly speaking lies, always drawing your attention away from Jesus. You do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have an enemy, and he's after you. 
Now, the truth of the matter is too, isn't it true that um, maybe you don't have any physical enemies in your life, but you probably have some opponents in your life. Is that a PC way to say that? No enemies, but you probably have some opponents, don't you? Some people who maybe aren't always for you or they're, they're a little bit against you. They, um, they question your decisions. They, they know how to do your job better than you do. Let's be honest, right? They question your decisions. They, uh, they question your motives. They make judgments about you that just are not informed whatsoever. And they ascribe things to you and assume things about you that aren't true. Um, bring those things before the Lord. See, that's what the psalmist is expressing this. I don't know, but he's like, a, I go in mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. When will this end? In fact, it's, it says, look at verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. You ever have a bone ache? You ever have one of your bones just ache? Every day. It's brutal, isn't it? I'm not to the everyday phase yet, but I'm sure I'm, I'm hopefully, Lord willing, I'll get there one day. Uh, but isn't it true that when you, like you can't sleep and no matter how you move, it's just always there? And then sometimes it wakes you up in the middle of the night. And then when you walk, you can't quite walk normal. Like everything has changed because of this ache in your bones. And uh, the psalmist here, I think that's what he's saying. Your translation says, as with a deadly wound, the Hebrew literally means uh, with a crushing of my bones. It's like I'm just crushed. I can't move. I'm stuck. And, and all I hear all day long are these taunts of my adversaries telling me all the things that are wrong. And maybe it's not people, but maybe it's situations, or maybe it's just me speaking foolish things and I have stinking thinking about my situation. But that's what he says it's like. All, and all the day long, they too, they say, where is your God? But thankfully, uh, the psalmist doesn't stay there. See, it's okay to express your, your frustration to God. He's big enough, he can take it. It's okay to go to him with your complaints, but it's not okay to stay there. In fact, back in Isaiah, or ahead in Isaiah, if you look at Isaiah 45, God says this to Isaiah, woe to him who strives with the one who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to the one who formed it, Why, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you giving birth to? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Don't, don't, don't get caught in the trap of your whole life is about complaining to God and about God. No, bring your complaint to him, but then turn your mind to what's true about him. Get in his word. That's what the psalmist does here in verse 11. He goes right back to the chorus. Think of that sheep again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? You stay here, you're going to die. Hope in God. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even yet he die, he shall, he'll live forever, right? Trust him. Hope in God. For I will again praise him. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, now we're in round three. When you get into chapter 43, Psalm 43, uh, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. Have you ever prayed that? God, vindicate me. Would you just show these people that I'm, 
I'm not who they say or I'm not what they think. Would you just vindicate me? Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Would you deliver me? Now, he he turns a, a little Well, sort of turns a little quicker. Look at verse two. He goes, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. That's good. But then he goes, so why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Repeats himself there again. Whatever it is he's dealing with, whatever is going through his mind, it's it's just taunting him, isn't it? And just won't go away. He just doesn't know how to escape it. So he pours his heart out. But then uh, I love verses three through five. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. This is a great prayer. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Uh, Yesterday morning during the men's group, during Forge, we were talking about discernment, right? And uh, one of the comments was that to discern is maybe to see things rightly, to see things truly as they really are. And to ask God to help you see things rightly. And and that's kind of what this prayer is. As he's wrapping up his psalm, he's like, you know what? Send out your light and your truth. I know the situation is hard, but help me see it in truth. Help me see it as it really is. With your light, the way you see it. Let, Let your light lead me, not my circumstances, not my feelings, not my emotion. Let your light lead me. Let them, your light and your truth, bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then, when that happens, I will go to the altar of God, to my God, to God my exceeding joy. Notice it's not what his exceeding joy is, but who, it's God. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He returns right back to where he had been really early in Psalm 42 of wanting to go back and and worship, right? On the Psalms of Ascent and head back to Jerusalem. He's like, you know what, God, you're my joy. And as you light my path, as you turn my mind back to you, uh, I will again praise you with the lyre. I'm I'm gonna gonna play that thing again. I'm gonna worship you again. And then he ends again preaching to himself. So why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you believe that? Now, I don't, I don't know what the situation is for you. My guess is there's some type of anxiety, some type of anguish that you're dealing with, have dealt with, or will deal with. Maybe soon. And maybe it consumes you. And there's all different kinds. The psalmist even mentioned some, right? There's sometimes... Um, It's just absence from God and his people. Maybe part of your anguish is you need to get back in his word and back among his people and you need to be here and you need to be in a 110 group and you need to connect and you can't keep doing this on your own. Uh, Maybe it's um, just the taunts of of situations or of people or maybe it's the memories of better days. And you're not using them to, to propel you and trust God for the future, but you're just dwelling on them and you're stuck upside down on your back, feet kicking in the air. Maybe it's just the overwhelming trials of life, deep calls to deep in your life and his, the roar of his waterfalls just overwhelm you. Maybe you're just wondering, God, where are you? Why don't you act when I call to you? 
Maybe it's attacks from ungodly or wicked people. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to preach to yourself the truth. You need to remember God's grace, remember who he is, trust him for the future and say, soul, hope in God, hope in God for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. And who is that God? It's Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. And he holds you in his hand. He's a good shepherd. He loves you and he will protect you and guide you to the very end. He is your hope, even in the midst of despair. Amen? Um, With that, we're going to take our offering and we're gonna sing and call it a morning. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Lord, a psalm like this is sometimes hard to to preach, hard to read because it does, it, it dredges up, uh, things that are hard in our own life, but um, the truth is life is hard. And while it can be sobering and it can uh, be frustrating to deal with and even a little bit of a downer, uh, the truth is that you're the lifter of our head, that you are our, our confidence, you're our hope, that, that you love us and that, uh, Lord Jesus, the truth is that as we put our hope in you, uh, that even uh, while today might be morning, tomorrow uh, or the next day, or the next week, or the next month will be filled with dancing as we trust you. So give us that courage to trust you, Lord. I pray for those uh, who never have, uh, that today might be the day they turn in faith, Jesus, to you. Repent of their sin and uh, become a Christian so that this promise of hope, of you uh, being their salvation and their God would be true for them. Lord, we love you and uh, pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.